title today of our message from Acts chapter 6 is the diaconate, Christ's compassion displayed. I think it's a fitting verse here chapter in verse 5 of this hymn we just finished singing. Take my will and make it thine, it shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne, it shall be thy royal throne. And much of what we'll discuss today is taking a a look at our own hearts to see if we have been blessed to receive Christ's heart as our very own. Let's stand together as we read the scriptures. I'll read from verse 33 of chapter 5 through to verse 15 of chapter 6. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Theudas rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it lest you even be found to fight against God. And they agreed with him, and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Now, in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. They were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speaking, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. 
They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen, amen. Please be seated. <coughs> About the diaconate, John, John Calvin said, commenting on this text, Now we see to what end deacons were made. The wor- word itself is indeed general, yet is it properly taken for those which are stewards for the poor. Stewards for the poor is a good summary of what the diaconate is to be about. We need to look deep, more deeply, though, than just organization and good administration. I want to ask you, do you feel the pain of compassion inside yourself when you observe the poor and the sick and the oppressed, especially those from amongst the family of God? Or, like most of our world, have you learned to wall off your soul from this form of suffering? Have you bought into the various justifications that relieve you from your personal responsibility to be like the Good Samaritan? How does this world help us to insulate ourselves from the pain of others? What are the various tools that we tend to interact with that numb us to this pain? We live in a fragmented society. We have media, we have distractions, we have escapism, we have materialism. Why is it so unusual to see God's people walking the life of the Good Samaritan? Maybe you see it more than I do. Uh, We can read about it, there are stories about it. Maybe this sermon will help it be more true of us individually, uh, in our own lives, in our own families, and in our church. So as I said, the title is The Diaconate Christ's Compassion Displayed. We'll look at a couple of key points along the way. First, all that Jesus began both to do and teach. We'll go back to the opening verse of Acts chapter 1 and consider this. And then we'll see the compassion of Christ incarnate displayed. We'll look at his life and the compassion of Jesus himself. And then we'll look at the reality that we are the body of Christ. We are now Christ's compassion expressed in this world. And then specifically, we'll look at the diaconate, Christ's compassion displayed most clearly, most directly through his church. And then some questions to know and to love and to obey God. Perhaps we'll gain a a clearer vision for the diaconate and how the diaconate is the expression of the corporate compassion of a body of believers. So first of all, all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. Acts 1, verses 1 through 3. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So we see that during his incarnation, Christ began both to do and to teach. He began both to do and to teach. His doing and His teaching demonstrated that God's kingdom had arrived in a new and a fuller way than ever before. 
When we consider what Christ did while he walked this earth, we not only see great power on display, great power over sickness and over disease and over demons. I'm sure there's multiple stories that you've read from the Gospels that are coming to mind now. But also we see uh, text after text, the fountain that drives his great power, that directs his power, engages his power. And that's Christ's compassion. Christ's compassion drove his actions. Commentary says, what began in Jerusalem with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the proclamation of the apostles really began in Galilee where Jesus began to preach the good news of the arrival of the kingdom of God and to help people in need. So let's go back and take a look at some of the moments of Christ's compassion displayed during his incarnation. Christ's inner compassion is often linked to his actions in the Gospels. Luke gives us a beautiful example with the widow of Nain. In verses 11 through 17, we'll read it again. Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him, and a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us. And God has visited his people. And this report about him went through all Judea and all the surrounding region. You see the result of this compassion on display. And that's a good result. But you see what motivated Jesus was his compassion for this one woman. It moved him to action because of what she was going through. He spoke words of comfort. You see the first action is he spoke words of comfort to the widow whose only son had died. She was on her own. He came near and he touched the open coffin. He came near and touched that which had made him unclean. He spoke words of resurrection to the young man, raising him up from the dead, restoring him to health so that he could speak again. It says he sat up and began talking. He presented the only son that this woman had, alive back to the mom. And Comforted, comforted her, I'm sure, greatly. This word compassion is to be moved as to one's bowels, hence to be moved with compassion, to have compassion because the bowels were thought to be the seat of love and pity. And the splanknik nerve and the splanknik vessels that you'll read about inside come from this Greek word. It has to do with the deep, moving feelings that we have that seem to wash us away sometimes. It's to feel sympathy. It's to feel pity for someone. To be moved with compassion for them. King James interprets this word seven times to have compassion and five times to be moved with compassion. Do you have one experience in your life where this happened to you? Even one that you could tell the story about. Where you were moved with compassion and you had to act. Next. Let's look at some other examples of Christ's compassion in the Gospels. Matthew 9, we see the connection between compassion and prayer. Prayer is an action. 
We see a connection between compassion and prayer here. When he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The compassion of Christ moves him to pray and to call for prayer so that the sheep would have loving shepherds. Mark 14, 14, we see the connection between Christ's compassion and his healing power. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. <coughs> Matthew fifteen thirty two, we see the compassion of Christ expressed in feeding people. Now Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And I do, do not want to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. Jesus had compassion for people when they were hungry, and so he fed them. Mark 6.34 shows the connection between Christ's compassion and his teaching. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. So Christ is moved by the plight of the people in the world. He sees it. He knows it, and he experiences, and then he moves to meet the need. Luke 15, 20, uh, this is perhaps an example of compassion amidst mistreatment and a right response to someone who repents. He arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Of course, the Father here is the model of God's compassion towards us. And the Father's not there thinking about how bad His Son has treated Him. He's there waiting for Him with a heart of compassion. And as soon as He sees His boy, He runs to Him and He meets His need, right? He clothes Him. He puts a ring on His finger. He feeds Him. This is Christ's compassion on display for us. And there's many other examples we could go to of Christ being moved because of His compassion, His pity. He felt it. It hurt him. It was suffering. Compassion is suffering the way that you see someone else suffering. Brothers and sisters, we are the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ now. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 makes it clear. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. Think of it. Our risen and reigning Lord mysteriously lives in us and through us in this earth by His Holy Spirit. He has not departed this earth. We suffer and rejoice with Him as He shares His heart with us. Think about that. We suffer and rejoice with Him as He shares His heart with us. We're told He dwells in us by His Spirit. We can share Christ's compassion and it will hurt. Colossians 1.24 says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of His body, which is the church. I hope that you'll see one of the key points of today's sermon is that feeling compassion is a form of suffering. is a form of suffering with Christ. Seeing with His eyes, feeling what He feels when He sees the misery of what human beings made in His image are going through. Feeling compassion, brothers and sisters, it's a form of suffering. It's an aching initiated by observing the suffering of others, by being 
near to them. It is a distinctly human emotion. It's one of the things that separates us from animals. How can we learn, brothers and sisters, to share in Christ's compassion? To be broken like He was. It's a scary thing to consider. Because there's so much suffering in this world. We see that compassion is the distinguishing feature of the Good Samaritan. You want to know what marked out the Good Samaritan from all the other religious people? It's from Luke 10. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? So that's Jesus now asking the lawyer to answer his own question. And he said, he who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. How often do we pass by on the other side instead of drawing near to the suffering? When we ache and mourn within because of the sufferings of others, As Christ did, then we will be moved as Christ is, like Christ is moved, to action, to try and help. Christ shares his compassion with us so that his heart, Christ's heart for the poor, the needy, and the downtrodden, becomes our heart. We can receive this from him. Because Christ, he is the only truly good Samaritan. That story's really about him. He's the only one who's come near and bandaged us perfectly. And he calls us to show mercy like him, to go and to do likewise. We're to pursue this. It's not supposed to be something that's just incidental and that passively occurs. It's to be a part of the plan for our lives, for our families, and for our churches. So are you moved with pity? with an inner suffering as you see others suffering. You know, we could have just jumped into this section, gone through the description of deacons, had a nice clear package of what deacons are, what they're supposed to do, how it originated here in AD 30, and trace it through the scriptures in the New Testament. We'll get to that. But we have to see why this whole thing came into existence in the first place. 
because of the heart of Christ for those who are suffering. So let's go back and take a look at the compassion of the church in the book of Acts. We'll look at scriptures from Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 4, and Acts 5, where God wants us to see why this whole thing came into existence. Yes, we need to know the structure. Yes, we need to see how division of labor and working together well, like we said the last sermon, preserves and promotes unity and the growth of the church, all of these things. But we can't miss the heart of this, that Christ suffers when he sees others suffering. And he gives that compassion to you and me, to his church. And we see it in the book of Acts. So first of all, Acts 2, 44 through 47. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So we see that same kind of process occurring again where compassion on display unifies the church and causes church growth. But again, the focus of their movement was towards those who were in need. What's the criteria? Anyone as anyone had need. The needs of their fellow brothers and sisters got their attention. It moved them. They had compassion. The newborn church felt Christ's compassion. Beginning here with the house of God, this compassion moved them to action. They sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all. And what was the criteria for this compassion? Need. Need. There was a deficiency. There was that which was lacking, which needed to be supplied. Now in Acts chapter 3, something very similar. See, it's a theme. It's, It's a part of what the church is and what the church does. And we'll continue to see it throughout the book of Acts. And you'll see it over and over again in the epistles. In the New Testament. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple. Who seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So while the compassion of Peter and John, we have to grant it's not directly mentioned, don't we see here the fruit of a compassionate heart? Don't we see here Peter and John being moved by this man's suffering and giving him far more than he was asking for? Acts chapter 4. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. 
And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. And we see the phrase again is to each as anyone had need in verse 35. So being moved by the sight of those without food, clothing, shelter, moved by their needs, the believers were moved to sell lands or houses and give the proceeds to the apostles so those who lacked could be supplied. And Barnabas is our great example here. Note the connection also between compassionate action and being an encourager. Being compassionate and being an encourager go together. Now in Acts 5, the same thing happens again. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those that were tormented by unclean spirits. And they were all healed. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of work. That's a lot of time. Consider the time that it takes to heal an entire multitude. And the energy necessary to cast demons out of an entire multitude of people. The compassion of Christ in his body is on display here. Christians are acting the way that Jesus acted. Here we see what Christ continues to do in his newborn church. And we can pray and hope to be a continued part of that in our time now. So the diaconate, Christ's compassion displayed. Let's look again at verses 1 through 7 of Acts chapter 6 with the knowledge of this compassion in, our, in the background and what this church has been through and how this church is displaying Christ's compassion. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. So there were needs being met daily. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. So this business needed to continue. This is a, a very direct acknowledgement that tithe funds, offering funds, are to be put to work by the church, administered by the church, to help with the physical and material needs of the members of the church. And it's one of the few ministries that the church itself is to pay for and to administer and to oversee. Most of what the church is called to do is just to equip the saints for the works of ministry. This is actually a direct ministry of the church that we see here. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. This is an important job. They name, Luke names these men, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. <clears throat> so I'm calling this this corporate compassion that we see on display in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5 
the book of Acts. It's underway. It's happening. And it's formed into this initial system of service for the needy widows. So it appears as though there wasn't some sort of plan in place. It just kind of developed over time. And these widows had daily need. And they were receiving daily distributions from the church to feed them. Maybe clothing as well, uh, according to their need. Um, Maybe they were helping them find places to stay as well. Compassion itself, though, does not ensure good organized service to the poor and the needy. I think about it like a fireplace. If we're serious about stoking the fire of compassion and sending its beautiful light and heat into the world, we need the fireplace of God's church in the earth to guide it for maximum benefit and for the sake of peace and unity, for the sake of the glory of God, so we can point to Christ as the fire. So the apostles defined the criteria for the brethren. We looked at this two Sundays ago. There were supposed to be seven. There were supposed to be men. They're supposed to be of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, and full of wisdom. Commentary says they stipulate two qualifications. First, they must have a good reputation. That is, they should be well spoken of in the congregation so that their appointment will meet with the approval of all believers. Second, they must be filled with the Spirit and with wisdom. There should be evidence that their lives have been characterized and transformed by the presence of the Holy Spirit bestowed upon them when they came to faith in Jesus. There should be evidence that they can make good judgments, an important factor in the ministry of daily food distribution, which had not been handled in a fully competent and fair manner in the past. And some 30 years later, we're going to get to Paul listing out the criteria for putting a widow on the widow's list. The necessity of wisdom, the necessity of being filled with the Holy Spirit, knowing who to help, whom to help, knowing how to help, knowing when to help, and knowing that if you get that wrong, you can actually hurt people. In our attempts to help, we can hurt. The apostles also defined the process for us. This is important. We looked at it last time. They asked for seven qualified men, so the apostles set out the need. The brethren select the qualified men, and then the apostles appoint the seven qualified men. It's that cooperative interaction between church leadership and church membership. So the diaconate is solidified through the next 30 30 years in the New Testament. Uh, Philippians 1, uh, 1 and 2, this is in the early 80s, 60s, the opening words, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The two offices are distinct from one another by this time. The two offices comprise the church leadership of a local church and is not separate, though, from the local church. They are all members together. You see to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. The bishops and deacons are amongst the saints. The bishops and deacons are members with all the saints as they serve as they serve as ministers meeting the physical needs expressing the compassion of Christ in the earth and so if our hearts aren't right then our hands won't work if our hearts aren't right our feet won't go to the right place if our hearts aren't right we won't be the hands of Christ in the earth 
And it's really sad when the church is not fulfilling the diaconate ministry that is the heart of Christ expressed through His church in the earth. I hope that you'll have this, this activity somehow in your family and in your personal life. We see that as well. And that also comes forth from this compassion that we need. 1 Timothy 3, 8-13, also uh, written around the same time, a little bit after Philippians in maybe 63 or 64 A.D. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let, those, let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own house as well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. And so what we see here is that the criteria for this office, they're further detailed and clarified by Paul. You can see the broad categories described early in Acts 6, 30 years prior, and you can see that it, the details have been added to it over time. Now, even including an examination for the deacon's wife. So note the similarity to Acts 6, the same broad categories, but now with more details. The work of overseeing the material well-being of the church with good use of funds in an organized fashion falls to the deacons. But note the criteria that we see are primarily spiritual character-based criteria. It doesn't say be an accountant or a CPA or a bookkeeper. It doesn't say make sure you've got the bean counter credentials. So just because a man is good at organizing and caring for physical needs does not necessarily mean he's called to be a deacon. Note how motive is behind all this, how motive is in view here. What is the deacon's motivation? Is it to serve Christ? Is the deacon motivated by the compassion of Christ? How did these six gain a good reputation amongst all the people? Compassion flows out. The people came to see that it was their true desire to help people, to be a servant, to be a part of meeting needs. Their compassion motivated them to serve. They were receiving Christ's motivation. I think it's good to look at also 1 Timothy 5. fits into this. Because again, we see a clarification of wisdom over time serving widows in the church. Honor widows who are really widows. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents. For this is good and acceptable before God. Now she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. And these things command that they may be blameless. But if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man, well reported for good works, if she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. So you see that the need of the widow is to be first met by her family. 
And if her family will not meet that need, then the church steps in. If her family will not meet, meet that need, shame on them, the text says. This text says, shame on you if you will not meet the need of the widow in your family and, and of all of the members of your family. And the church is to be there as the backup for these widows. But there's limited resources and there are frauds in the earth. And so over time, the wisdom is necessary to know how to decide which widows receive the resources that have been given to the church leaders, trusting them to administer it faithfully. So we see the needs of widows persist from the new, newborn church through to other churches in other locations throughout times, and, and it's still true today. The church must make plans to care for faithful widows using wisdom as the church funds are expended to meet daily needs. <clears throat> There's a book that I'm going to point you to called In the Shadow of Plenty uh, and another one uh, by the same author, Bringing in the Sheaves. And one of the things that's discussed is the, the material prosperity of our time and the combination of uh, socialistic actions in terms of government taking over this necessary societal activity. And how can we grow through this in light of the significant prosperity of our society, in light of the handouts coming from the federal, state, and local governments? How can we find the needy? How can we get next to the poor and the needy? Um, first, we start in our own congregation. <clears throat> so, some questions to know and to love and to obey God. I think it's an important question for each one of us to ask ourselves. Have you ever experienced the pain of compassion that prompted you to sacrifice your own possessions to supply the need of others? And I'm not asking if you've ever given to supply the needs of others, right? Because there's different reasons why we do things. I'm asking if you felt pain inside because of the suffering of others. This compassion, this moving of our souls that necessitated action. Like you could not, you could not ignore what you were seeing. Has that ever happened to you? <clears throat> Especially those within the household of God. Um, certainly those in your family. Do you have compassion for those in your family? How in the world are we going to have compassion for anybody if we don't have compassion for the suffering of those in our own family? And then, of course, those that we're closest to Sunday after Sunday. We suffer. Uh, and, of course, the conversation can be expanded. The context here is food, clothing, and shelter. But compassion is broader. It really has to do with pity uh, when those around you suffer. This is an essential quality of being a mature Christian, brothers and sisters. And it is completely out of your control. It is utterly and completely up to God to grant to you his heart to have this compassion. You can't gin this up. You can't gin this up. You can know what you're supposed to do. You can know you're supposed to have compassion, but you cannot create this inner experience, this compassion that's being described. So have you ever experienced that? And if not, pray. Acknowledge that it's a deficiency in your soul. 
acknowledge that something has gone wrong in your life. And I think it's probably something that's gone wrong in most of our lives. This insulating approach to pain and the idea that we can pass by on the other side because the the state is the Good Samaritan or, or somebody else is the Good Samaritan. Okay. Next, have you ever considered that we can do harm to the poor and the needy in our own midst and outside of our church if we do not respond wisely, especially in regard to helping those who are far away? Wisdom, do you think wisdom is hard to come by? How much harder to come by if you're trying to obtain it from a distance? And you're trying to know how to help someone from a distance. And you don't interact with them. You don't engage with them. Think of the criteria for the widows. You had to live there with these people. You had to know this woman. It's not like a form you could fill out from a distance very easily. So have you thought about that? Churches and their leaders, this is from commentary, need wisdom to know what constitutes the most effective help in the long term. And I grant that this is something that doesn't have an immediate applicability to our local assembly. But hopefully it will over time as we grow and as we connect and as we have more corporate compassion, more corporate connections with the needy and the oppressed and you know, more connections with one another to understand one another's needs better. Believers who do not have enough to eat obviously need immediate help. Believers who are impoverished may need to be given money so that they can pay their rent and buy food. They may also need advice on how to budget their income. People who are out of work may need immediate assistance. They also need help with finding new employment. As you can see, it's a process we have to be engaged with. You can't just throw money from a distance. A lot of it, is it really compassion or is it just appeasing guilt? Next, what can be done to make sure that needs are identified so the resources of the church can be put to use to supply needs? Sometimes needs go unidentified and unknown. Commentary says churches and their leaders should be informed about members who are in financial need and who are needy in other areas, marital, emotional, health, work-related. In large churches, the information flow can be a problem. And I would say in small churches, that's true too. And people who attend services can easily hide themselves. Churches must find means of effective communication concerning special needs that people have. You know, I'll tell you, our, your church leadership, our number one priority with the money that we have as a result of tithes and offerings is to make sure that your needs are met. Number one, to make sure that your needs are met. All of our needs are met. That if anyone's lacking in food or in clothing or in shelter, that you will be cared for. You'll be taken care of. And so the needs need to be identified. If there are needs, the diaconate of this church will be the hands, the compassionate hands of Christ. Okay. How should the church deal with those who have special needs? Right now we we don't really have a lot of that difficulty in our church with adults who can't find work and who need a lot of help. But how would we deal with that? Have you thought about that? Have you begun to ponder, really beginning to engage with the tremendous needs that are present in the church and in the world? Commentary says, churches and their leaders must be committed to helping believers who have special needs. In highly individualistic societies, this can be a problem 
Because intervention in a particular situation can be unduly delayed because we let people cope for themselves for too long. Or because people are too proud to admit they need help. As the love of Christ compels us. And that that text is is a great example of what's going on. It is our love for Christ that compels us, but it's also Christ's love for others within us that compels us. Next, how can we as a church be sure to help in the best way? Short-term, medium-term, long-term solutions will be needed for various situations. Short-term overseas ministries can be good, but they can also be harmful. We have to think these things through and be careful as the missions work of our church expands over time. As we're considering ministries to be involved in, ministries to expend our resources on, we need God's wisdom. Commentary says churches and their leaders need wisdom to know what constitutes the most effective help, the most effective help in the long term. Believers who do not have enough to eat obviously need immediate help. Those who are impoverished may need to be given monies so they can pay their rent. This is important. Jessica and I were in Honduras. And we saw, we, we had an opportunity to be close to the need. We touched the coffin, if you will. Jesus went near to those in need. He didn't just have a YouTube video. And that's one of the things that I think we want to consider is, are you being proactive in getting yourself around the needy? Around those who are poor and who are sick and who have one pair of clothing and whose roof leaks, and who aren't sure where their next meal is coming from, especially those in the church. How can you cultivate compassion in your heart? You can pray for it, right? But how can you cultivate compassion in your heart? I I mean, if you're sitting here and you go, oh, I don't have any problem with that. I'm filled with compassion anytime I see somebody suffer. It just overcomes me, and I... I give all my money away. All my friends have to take my hand away from my pocketbook whenever I'm in that situation. Please talk to us. Help us to grow to where you are if that is, if that is who you are. But I would say just thinking it through, some ways that we can cultivate this, that we can learn to share in Christ's compassion, to receive His heart, is to go and be around the needy. There is absolutely no replacement for personal experience. Go and be around the needy. Where can you go to rub shoulders with the poor and the needy? It's only a three-hour flight to Honduras. We have connections with the church there. We could go and make a meaningful connection with them. I don't know if God's calling us to do that. Just giving us an example. We have connections um, with others. Uh, We can go down to the abortion mill. There's a lot of suffering there. Um, I, can, I can say that in my life, this has helped, I think, helped me grow in compassion. Being there and seeing the suffering up close is just crushing. Um, so be around the needy. I would say, take a look at your life and be proactive. What can you do to be around the poor, the needy, the oppressed, the hungry, the downtrodden? Um, I know we have an opportunity also sometimes to go and sing at the nursing home. Perhaps we can continue to do that and go and bring God's cheer and God's love. I don't know. I'm sure you have other ideas. Next, reading stories about our suffering siblings in Christ. This is helpful 
especially if we can't get time with the poor and needy very easily in our lives. Search out, moms and dads, search out good books that tell the stories of the poor and the needy in God's church in the earth today. We can learn about, that we can pray for. And not just statistics, but individual stories, like the widow of Nain. That's an individual story that we can read and we can grow in our compassion. Again, I suggest to you the two books by George Grant, Bring in the Sheaves and In the Shadow of Plenty. There are other good works out there. But ultimately, I hope that today's sermon will challenge us to compare our own hearts to the heart of Christ and see how much we need Him to work in us, to grant to us His compassion. And that through that, we would grow up and that the diaconal expression of our corporate compassion would also grow in due time. We need, of course, more deacons. We need more elders. But I would say even uh, at the root, uh, I hope we can agree we need more of Christ's compassion in our hearts. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank you so much that you have compassion towards us, that you uh, move and express your mercy to us. How we thank you that as your lost sheep, uh, malnourished and threatened, cold and weak and hungry and alone, and without hope that you as our great shepherd came forth and rescued us upon the cross, demonstrating the greatest compassion of all time when you suffered under the Father's wrath for us, Lord Jesus. How we thank you and praise you. Oh, there's none like you, Lord Jesus. We do look to you and ask you to grant to us from heaven by your Spirit to receive your heart, Lord Jesus Christ, towards the poor and the sick and the needy and the downtrodden. In our midst, in your church, in our region and around the world and for all of humanity. Oh, we praise you and thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name.